Hello, everybody. Oh, thank you for coming out and joining us for our first Great Souls in just about three years. It's been a while. Uh, and it's an extra special night. We are raising money for the Seagull Project. We are also raising money for one of our favorite nonprofits in town, which is Mary's Place. And uh, so your, your tickets, your donations, et cetera, are going to supporting uh, those nonprofits. As I mentioned, it's been a while. We all know the big reason. We can kind of skip that part. Uh, but uh, I'll say, I want to say something about this little journey that Seagull Project has gone over the past three years. Like a lot of folks in town, uh, it was an opportunity for us to think about the work that we're doing as a nonprofit, who we want to be, uh, how we want to engage with our community and with our great ensemble of actors. And uh, we came back with a new model that we, and a new mission for that matter. And I'll go ahead and read this mission. Uh, it's inspired by the artistry and humanitarian legacy of Anton Chekhov. The Seagull Project seeks to challenge, redefine the modern American theater through intensive training, long form process, and international collaboration. Big uh, addition on there is uh, the humanitarian work. Uh, Anton Chekhov is a great short story writer who inspired this series uh, that we've been doing for 11 years, uh, which is incredible all by itself. Um, thank you, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I've been saying 11 years for I think five years also, by the way, so I don't really know how long this is going on. <laughs> but everything that lasts like five years is just a, is a blur, let's be honest. Um, but we, we really wanted to lean in that. He was, he was uh, notorious for building schools, for giving free medical treatment, to traveling to Siberia to help the tuberculosis outbreak, going to Sakhalin Island in eastern Russia to do the very first census with a prison population out there, which was the, the subject of his only nonfiction book. Uh, and we were really inspired by that. And we also just believed that with the hardships that our community, our city, the nation, et cetera, have been undergoing that we really wanted to make sure that we weren't just putting up really, really good art, but we were putting up really, really good art that also felt like it had a thrust to it, felt like that it was led with something a little, with a little more teeth. Um, and so uh, we landed on working on our next big project, uh, which is Maxim Gorky's The Lower Depths. We landed on this project for a lot of reasons. One, it is uh, another big, beefy ensemble classic with 15 actors, but it is also a piece that takes place in a uh, shelter in Russia in 1902. Uh, it is an ensemble piece that is focusing on a huge swath of different people coming from all sorts of different backgrounds, and that was something that we really wanted to interact with, especially given some of the complex nature of that conversation in our own city. And so we are partnering over the next year and a half. The, the, we are already in workshops. We've been in workshops for three months for the project uh, at Gethsemane Lutheran Center, by the way, which is one of our partners. Uh, really, really awesome place. And we just really appreciate everything they've done for us. Um, but uh, we've been in workshop for three months. We will continue to be in workshop until October of 2023. Uh, as we do, uh, working on this play, readapting it uh, with our adapter and, and, and our ensemble, uh, working with a myriad of nonprofits along the way, 
Uh, tonight we'll be talking about Mary's Place. Uh, uh, next, next month we're working with the Recovery Cafe. Uh, we're working with Facing Homelessness. We are working with uh, a ton of other nonprofits. And this serves two big purposes. One, it's great to shine light, raise money, and help those causes. It's also really important for our process, too, that we continue to learn and engage with these aspects of our city that are a big part of why, why we're interested in this play. Uh, we don't want to just do the thing. Uh, we want to really be a part of it and to try and activate our process in a way that we have never been able to do in the past. Uh, so we're really, really excited about the work we're going to be doing over this next year and a half. Thank you for being here for our very first live performance in so, so long. We really appreciate it. <laughs> So with that in mind, uh, Great Souls is our short story series. Tonight is curated by myself and Julie Briskman, who is back there. Hello, Julie. Uh, Julie's also our final reader tonight, so you'll have another chance for a lot of applause for her. But uh, tonight is curated around Mary's Place's mission, very specifically. And that mission is Mary's Place ensures that no child sleeps outside by centering equity and opportunity for women and families. Uh, so yeah, love, big, big plan to that. Our first story of the night, uh, I'll get right to it, is by a man that I'm sure a lot of people in this uh, room are very familiar. His name is David Sedaris. Uh, yes, indeed. David Sedaris is a, a famed autobiographical humorist. He's written a ton of short stories and books about his upbringing, his family, his life. His family is known for being quite wild, uh, including his sister Amy Sedaris, who is also a very famous comedian and actor. They're a writing duo. Uh, they do all sorts of stuff together. Uh, he is a really fantastic writer. He's constantly undercutting the expectations that he sets up in his stories and the circumstances that he provides. Um, and, uh, and in this story, he's, he's kind of adjusting exactly what we think of when we look for the normal American family. Uh, so without any further ado, I'm going to welcome C.T. Dosher to the stage. Us and Them by David Sedaris. When my family first moved to North Carolina, we lived in a rented house, three blocks from where I would eventually begin third grade. And my mother made friends with one of the neighbors, but one seemed enough for her. <laughs> Within a year, we would move again, and as she explained, there wasn't much point in getting too close to people we would have to say goodbye to. Our next house was less than a mile away, but, and the journey would hardly merit tears or even goodbyes. For that matter, it was more of a see you later kind of situation. But still, I adapted my mother's attitude as it allowed me to pretend that not making friends was a conscious choice. I could if I wanted to. It just wasn't the right time. Back in New York State, we had lived in the country with no sidewalks or streetlights. You could leave the house and still be alone. But here, when you looked out the window, you saw 
other houses and people inside of those houses. I hope walking around after dark that I might witness a murder. But for the most part, our neighbors just sat in their living rooms watching television. The only place that seemed truly different was owned by a man named Mr. Tomkey, who did not believe in television. This was told to us by our mother's friend, who dropped by one afternoon with a basket full of okra. The woman did not editorialize. Rather, she just presented her information, leaving the listener to make of it what she might. Had my mother said, that's the craziest thing I ever heard in my life, I assume the friend would have agreed with her. And had my mother said, three cheers for Mr. Tomkey, the friend would likely have agreed as well. It was a kind of a test, as was the okra. <laughs> to say that you do not believe in television was different in saying that you did not care for it. Belief implied that television had a master plan and that you were against it. It also suggested that you thought too much. When my mother reported that Mr. Tomkey did not believe in television, my father said, well, good for him. I don't know if I believe in it either. That's exactly how I feel, my mother said. And then my parents watched the news and whatever came on after the news. Word spread that Mr. Tomkey did not own a television. And you began hearing that while this was all very well and good, it was unfair of him to inflict his beliefs upon others, specifically his innocent wife and children. It was speculated that uh, just as a blind man develops a keener sense of hearing, the family must somehow compensate for this loss. Or maybe they read, my mother's friend said. Maybe they listen to the radio. But you can bet your boots that they're doing something. Well, I wanted to know what this something was. And so I began peering through the Tomkey's windows. During the day, I'd stand across the street from their house, acting as if I was waiting for someone. And at night, when the view was better and I had less of a chance of being discovered, I would creep into their yard and hide in the bushes beside their fence. Because they had no TV, the Tomkeys were forced to talk during dinner. <laughs> They had no idea how puny their lives were. And so they were not ashamed that a camera would have found them uninteresting. They did not know what attractive was or what dinner was supposed to look like or even what time dinner was supposed to be. Sometimes they wouldn't sit down until after 8 o'clock, long after everybody else had finished doing the dishes. 
During the meal, Mr. Tomkey would occasionally pound the table and point at his children with a fork. And then, the moment he finished, everyone would start laughing. Well, I got the idea that he was imitating someone else. And I wondered if he spied on us while we were at dinner. <laughs> when fall arrived and school began, I saw the Tomkey children marching up the hill with the paper bags in their hands. The son was one grade level lower than me and the sister one grade higher. We never spoke, but I'd pass them in the halls from time to time and attempt to see the world through their eyes. What must it like to be so ignorant and alone? Could a normal person even understand it? Staring at an Elmer Fudd lunchbox. I tried to divorce myself from everything I knew, Elmer's inability to pronounce the letter R, his incessant pursuit of an intelligent and considerably more famous rabbit. I tried to think of Elmer Fudd as just a drawing, but it was impossible to separate him from his celebrity. <laughs> One day in class, a boy named William began to write the wrong answer on the blackboard, and our teacher flailed her arm saying, warning, Will. Danger! Danger! Her voice was synthetic and void of emotion, and we all laughed, knowing that she was imitating the robot in a weekly show about a family that lived in outer space. The Tomkeys, though, would have thought that she was having a heart attack. <laughs> it occurred to me that they needed a guide someone who could accompany them through the course of an average day and point out all the things that they were unable to understand. Well, I could have done it on the weekends, but friendship would have taken away their mystery and interfered with the good feeling that I got in pitying them. So I kept my distance. In early October, the Tomkeys bought a boat, and everyone seemed greatly relieved, especially my mother's friend, who noted that the motor was definitely second-hand. It was reported that Mr. Tomkey's father-in-law owned a boat, owned a house on the lake, and had invited the family to use it whenever they wanted. But uh, this explained why they were gone all weekend, but it did not make their absences any easier to bear. I felt as if my favorite show were canceled. <laughs> Halloween fell on a Saturday that year, and by the time my mother took us to the store, all the good costumes were gone. My sisters dressed as witches, and I dressed as a hobo. I'd looked forward to going in disguise to the Tomkey's door, but they were off to the lake, and their house was dark. Before leaving, they had left a coffee can full of gumdrops on the front porch, alongside a side reading, don't be greedy. In terms of Halloween candy, individual gumdrops were just about as low as you could get. This was evidenced by a large number of them floating in an adjacent dog bowl. 
I mean, it was disgusting to think that this is what a gumdrop might look like in your stomach. And it was insulting to be told not to take too much of something that you didn't really want in the first place. <laughs> Who do these Tonkies think they are? My sister Lisa asked. Night after Halloween, we were sitting around watching TV when the doorbell rang. Visitors were infrequent at our house, and while my father stayed behind, my mother, sisters, and I ran downstairs in a group, opening the door to discover the entire Tomkey family on our front stoop. The parents looked as they always had, but the son and daughter were dressed in costumes. She as a ballerina, and he as some kind of rodent with terry cloth ears and a tail made from what looked to be an extension cord. <laughs> it seemed that they had spent the previous evening on the lake in solitude and had missed the opportunity to observe Halloween. So, well, I guess we're trick-or-treating now, if that's all right, Mr. Tomkey said. I attributed their behavior to the fact that they didn't own a TV. <laughs> but television didn't teach you everything. Asking for candy on Halloween was called trick-or-treating, and asking for candy on November 1st was called begging. And it made people uncomfortable. This was one of the things that you were supposed to learn simply by being alive, and it angered me that the Tomkeys didn't understand it. Uh, why, uh, of course you're not too late, my mother said. Kids, why don't you run and get the candy? But the candy is gone, my sister Gretchen said. We gave it all away last night. No, not that candy, my mother said. The other candy. Why don't you run and get it? You mean our candy, Lisa said? The candy that we earned? This was exactly what my mother was talking about, but she didn't want to say this in front of the Tomkeys. In order to spare their feelings, she wanted them to believe that we always kept a bucket of candy lying around the house, just waiting for somebody to knock on the door and ask for it. Go on now, my mother said. Hurry up. My room was situated right off the foyer, and if the Tomkeys had looked in that direction, they could have seen my bed and the brown paper bag marked my candy keep out. I didn't want them to know how much candy I had, and so I went into my room and I shut the door. And then I closed the curtains and emptied my bag on the bed, searching for whatever was the crummiest. All my life, chocolate has made me ill. I don't know if I'm allergic or what, but even the smallest amounts leave me with a blinding headache. Eventually I learned to stay away from it, but as a child I refused to be left out. The brownies were eaten, and when the pounding began, I would blame the grape juice or my mother's cigarette smoke or my glasses were too tight, anything but the chocolate. 
My candy bars were poison, but they were brand name, and so I put them in pile number one, which definitely would not go to the Tonkies. <laughs> Out in the hallway, I could hear my mother straining for something to talk about. A boat, she said. That sounds marvelous. Can you just drive it into the lake? Actually, we have a trailer, Mr. Tonky said, so what we do is back it into the water. Oh, a, a, a trailer. What kind is it? <laughs> well, it's a boat trailer, Mr. Tonky said. Right, but is it wooden or, you know. I, I guess what I'm asking is what style of trailer is it? Behind my mother's words were two messages. The first and most obvious was, yes, I am talking about boat trailers, and also I am dying. <laughs> the second meant only for my sisters and me was, if you do not immediately step forward with that candy, you will never again experience freedom, happiness, or the possibility of my warm embrace. Well, I knew it was a matter of time before she came into my room and started collecting the candy herself, grabbing indiscriminately with no regard to my ranking system. See, had I been thinking straight, I would have hidden the most valuable items in my dresser drawer, but instead panicked at the thought of her hand on my doorknob. I tore off the wrappers and began cramming the candy bars into my mouth, desperately, like someone in a contest. Most of them were miniature, which made it easier to accommodate, but still, there was only so much room, and it was hard to chew and put in more at the same time. The headache began immediately, but I chalked it up to tension. My mother told the Tomkeys she needed to check on something, and then she opened the door and stuck her head into my room. What are you doing? She whispered, but my mouth was too full to answer. Uh, I'll just be a moment, she said, and then she closed the door behind her and moved towards my bed. I began breaking the wax lips and the candied necklaces pulled from pile number two. These were the second best things that I had received, and while it hurt to destroy them, it would have hurt even more to have to give them away. I had just begun to mutilate a miniature box of Red Hots when my mother pulled them from my hands, accidentally finishing the job for me. BB-sized pellets clattered onto the floor, and as I followed them with my eyes, she snatched up a roll of Necco wafers. Oh. Not close! <laughs> I pleaded, but rather than words, my mouth expelled chocolate. <laughs> Chewed chocolate which fell onto the sleeve of her sweater. Not those! Not those! She shook her arm, and the mound of chocolate dropped upon my bedspread. You should look at yourself, she said. I mean, really look at yourself. Along with the Necco wafers, she took several Tootsie Pops and half a dozen caramels wrapped in cellophane. I heard her apologies to the Tonkies for her absence, and then I heard my candy 
hitting the bottom of their bags. What do you say, Mr. Tomkey asked. And the children answered, thank you. While I was in trouble for not bringing my candy sooner, my sisters were in more trouble for not bringing theirs at all. We spent the early part of the evening in our rooms, and then one by one, we eased our way back downstairs and joined our parents in front of the TV. I was the last to arrive and took a seat on the floor beside the sofa. The show was a Western, and even if my head had not been throbbing, I doubt I would have had the wherewithal to follow it. A posse of outlaws crested a rocky hilltop, squinting at a flurry of dust advancing on the horizon, and I thought again of the Tomkeys and of how alone and out of place they had looked in their dopey costumes. What was up with that kid's tail? I asked. <laughs> Shh, my family said. For months, I had protected and watched over these people, but now, with one stupid act, they had turned my pity into something hard and ugly. And the shift wasn't gradual, it was immediate, and it provoked an uncomfortable feeling of loss. We hadn't been friends, the Tomkeys and I, but still, I had given them the gift of my curiosity. <laughs> Wondering about the Tomkeys' family had made me feel generous, but now I would have to shift gears and find pleasure in hating them. <laughs> the only alternative was to do what my mother had instructed and take a good look at myself. This was an old trick designed to turn one's hatred inward, and while I was determined not to fall for it, it was hard to shake the mental picture snapped by her suggestion. Here is a boy sitting on a bed, his mouth covered with chocolate. He's a human being, but also he's a pig, <laughs> surrounded by trash and gorging himself so others may be denied. Were this the only image in the world, you'd be forced to give it your full attention. But fortunately, there were others. This stagecoach, for instance, coming around the bend with a cargo of gold, this shiny new Mustang convertible, this teenage girl, her hair a beautiful mane, sipping Pepsi through a straw, one picture after another, on and on until the news and whatever came on after the news. C.T. Dosher, everyone. And David Sedaris. <laughs> uh, up next, uh, we have one more story, then we'll go to intermission. Uh, this next piece is by Louise Erdrich. Uh, uh, Louise Erdrich is a Native American who uh, writes. 
poetry, children's books, novels. She's a two-time National Book Critics uh, Circle Award winner, a National Book Award winner, a Paul, uh, Penn Saul Bellow Award for Achievement in Literary Fiction, and just last year, she won the Pulitzer Prize for her novel, The Night Watchman. I know, pretty good. Uh, and we have a really, really wonderful short story by her. Uh, and to share said story, I would like to invite, invite Ayota Shinde up to the stage. The Leap by Louise Erdrich. My mother is the surviving half of a blindfold trapeze act. <laughs> not a fact I think about much, even now that she is blind, the result of encroaching in stubborn cataracts. She walks slowly through her house here in New Hampshire, lightly touching her way along walls running her fingers over knickknacks, books, the drift of a grown child's belongings and cast-offs. She has never upset an object or so much as brushed a magazine onto the floor. She has never lost her balance or bumped into a closet door left carelessly open. It has occurred to me that the cat-like precision of her movements in old age might be the result of her early training, but she shows so little of the drama or flair that one might expect from a performer that I tend to forget the flying Avalons. She has kept no sequined costume, no, no photographs, no feathers or posters from that part of her youth. I would, in fact, tend to think that all memory of double somersaults and heart-catching uh, Heart-stopping catches had left her arms and legs were it not for the fact that sometimes as I sit sewing in the room of the rebuilt house in which I slept as a child, I hear the crackle, catch a whiff of smoke from the stove downstairs, and then suddenly the room goes dark and I'm sewing with a needle of hot silver, a thread of fire. I owe her my existence three times. The first is when she saved herself. In the town square, a replica of the tent pole, cracked and splintered, now stands, cast in concrete. It commemorates the disaster that put our town smack on the front page of the Boston and New York tabloids. It's from these old newspapers, historic records now, that I get my information. Not from my mother, Anna of the Flying Avalons, nor any of her in-laws, nor certainly from the other half of her particular act, Harold Avalon, her first husband. In one account, it says, the day was mildly overcast, but there was nothing in the air or temperature that gave any hint of the sudden force 
with which the deadly gale would strike. Now, I've lived in the West where you can see the weather coming for miles. And it is true, we are at a bit of a disadvantage over here. When extremes of temperature collide, a hot and cold front, winds generate instantaneously behind a hill and crash upon you without warning. That, I think, was likely the situation on that day in June. People probably commented on the pleasant air, grateful that no hot sun beat down on the striped tent that covered the entire center green. They bought their tickets, surrendered them in anticipation. They sat, they ate caramel popcorn and, and roasted peanuts. There was time before the storm for three acts. The white Arabians of Ali Khazar rose on their hind legs and waltzed. The mysterious Bernie folded himself into a painted cracker tin. The Lady of the Mist made herself appear and disappear in surprising places. As the clouds gathered outside unnoticed, the ringmaster cracked his whip, shouted his introduction, and pointed to the ceiling of the tent where the flying Avalons were perched. They loved to drop gracefully down from nowhere like two sparkling birds and then blow kisses as they threw off their plumed helmet and high collared capes. They laughed and flirted openly as they beat their way back up again on the trapeze bars. And in the final vignette of their act, they would actually kiss in midair, pausing, almost hovering, as they swooped past one another. And on the ground between boughs, Harry Avalon would skip to the front rows and proudly show off that smear of my mother's lipstick just off the edge of his mouth. They, they uh, made a romantic pair, all right especially in the blindfold sequence. That afternoon, as the anticipation increased, as Mr. and Mrs. Avalon tied sparkling strips of fabric to each other's face, as they puckered their lips in mock kisses, lips destined never again to meet, as one long, breathless article put it, the wind rose miles off, wrapped itself into a cone, and howled. There came a rumble of electrical energy drowned out by the sudden roll of drums. One detail not mentioned by the press, perhaps unknown at the time. Anna was pregnant at the time, seven months, and hardly showing. That's how strong her stomach muscles were. It seems incredible that she would work high off the ground when any fall could be so dangerous. But the explanation, I know this from watching her go blind, is that my mother lives comfortably in extreme elements. She is one with the constant dark now, just as the air was her home familiar to her, safe before the storm that afternoon. 
From opposite ends of the tent, they waved blind and smiling to the crowd below. The ringmaster removed his hat and called for silence so that the two above could concentrate. They rubbed their hands in chalky powder. Then Harry launched himself and swung once, twice, in huge calibrated beats across space. He hung from his knees and on the third swing, he stretched wide his arms, held his hands out to receive his pregnant wife as she dove from her sparkling bar. And it was while they were in midair, their hands about to meet, that lightning struck the tent pole and sizzled down the guy wires, filling the air with a blue radiance that Harry must certainly have seen through the cloth of his blindfold. As the tent buckled and the edifice toppled him forward and the swing continuing, not returning in its sweep, and Harry going down, down into the crowd with his last thought, perhaps just a prickle of surprise at his empty hands. My mother once said that I'd be amazed at how many things a person can do within the act of falling. Perhaps at the time she was teaching me to dive off a board at the town pool, for I associate the idea with midair somersaults. But I also think she meant that even in that awful, doomed second, one could think, for she certainly did. When her hands did not meet her husband's, my mother tore her blindfold away. As he swept past her on the wrong side, she could have grasped his ankle, the, the toe end of his tights, and gone down clutching him. Instead, she changed direction. Her body twisted towards a heavy wire and she managed to hang on to the braided metal, still hot from the lightning strike. Her palms were burned so terribly that once they healed, they bore no lines. Only the blank scar tissue of a quieter future. She was lowered gently to the sawdust ring just underneath the dome of the canvas roof, which did not entirely settle, but was held up on one end, jabbed through and torn, still on fire in places from the giant spark, though rain and men's jackets soon put that out. <sighs> Three people died. But except for her hands, my mother was not seriously harmed until an overeager rescuer broke her arm in extricating her and also in the process collapsed a portion of the tent bearing a huge buckle that knocked her unconscious. And she was taken to the town hospital and there she must have hemorrhaged for they kept her confined to her bed a month and a half before her baby was born without life. Harry Avalon had wanted to be buried in the circus cemetery next to the original Avalon, his uncle. So she sent him back with his brothers. The child, however, is buried around the corner beyond this house and just down the highway. Sometimes I used to walk there just to sit 
she was a girl, but I barely thought of her as a sister or even as a separate person, really. I suppose you could call it the egocentrism of a child, of all young children, but I considered her a less finished version of myself. When the snow falls, throwing shadows across the stones, I can easily pick out hers from the road, for it's bigger than the others, and in the shape of a lamb at rest, its legs curled beneath. The carved lamb looms larger as years pass, though <laughs> it's probably only my eyes, the vision shifting, as what is close to me blurs and distances sharpen. In odd moments, I think it is the edge drawing near, the edge of everything, the unseen horizon we do not really speak of in the eastern woods. And it also seems to me, <laughs> although this is probably an idle fantasy, that the statue is growing more sharply etched, as if instead of weathering itself into a porous mass, it is hardening on the hillside with each snowfall, perfecting itself. It was during her confinement in the hospital that my mother met my father. He was called in to look at the set of her arm, which was complicated. He stayed, sitting at her bedside, for he was something of an armchair traveler and had spent his war quietly at an Air Force training grounds, where he became a specialist in arms and legs broken during parachute training exercises. Anna Avalon had been to many of the places he longed to visit, Venice, Rome, Mexico, all through France and Spain. She had no family of her own and was taken in by the Avalons, trained to perform from a very young age. They toured Europe before the war and then based themselves in New York. She was illiterate. It was in the hospital that she finally learned to read and write as a way of overcoming the boredom and depression of those weeks. And it was my father who insisted on teaching her. In return for stories of her adventures, he graded her first exercises. He bought her her first book and over her hold letters, which the pale guides of the penmanship pads could not contain, they fell in love. I wonder if my father calculated the exchange offered. One form of flying for another. For after that, and, and for as long as I can remember, my mother has never been without a book. <laughs> Until now, that is. And it remains the greatest difficulty in her blindness. Since my father's recent death, death, there is no one to read to her, which is why I returned, in fact, from my failed life where the land is flat. I came home to read to my mother, to read out loud, read long into the dark, if I must, to read all night. 
Once my mother and father married, they moved on to the old farm he had inherited but didn't care much for. Though he'd been thinking of moving to a larger city, he settled down and broadened his practice in this valley. It still seems odd to me, when they could have gone anywhere else, that they chose to stay in the town where the, the disaster had occurred, and which my father in the first place had found so constricting. It was my mother who insisted upon it after her child did not survive. And then too, she, she loved the sagging farmhouse with its scrap of what was left of a vast acreage of woods and hidden hay fields that stretched to the game park. I owe my existence the second time then to the two of them and to the hospital that brought them together. That is the debt that we take for granted since none of us asks for life. It is only once we have it that we hold on so dearly. I was seven the year the house caught fire, probably from standing ash. It can rekindle, and my father, forgetful around the house and perpetually exhausted from night hours on call, often emptied what he thought were ashes from cold stoves into wooden or cardboard containers. The fire could have started from a flaming box, or perhaps a buildup of creosote inside the chimney was the culprit. It started right around the stove, and the heart of the house was gutted. The babysitter, fallen asleep in, the, in my father's den on the first floor, woke to find the stairway to my upstairs bedroom cut off by flames. She used the phone and then ran outside to stand beneath my window. When my parents arrived, the town volunteers had drawn water from the fire pond and were spraying the outside of the house, preparing to go inside after me, not knowing at the time that there was only one staircase and it was lost. On the other side of the house, the superannuated extension ladder broke in half. Perhaps the clatter of it falling against the walls woke me, for I'd been asleep up to this point. As soon as I awakened in the small room that I now use for sewing, I smelled the smoke. I followed things by the letter then, was good at memorizing instructions, so I did exactly what was taught in the second grade home fire drill. I got up. I touched the back of my door before opening it. Finding it hot, I left it closed and stuffed my rolled up rug beneath the crack. I did not hide under my bed. I did not crawl into my closet. I put on my flannel robe and then I sat down to wait. Outside, my mother stood below my dark window and saw clearly that there was no rescue. Flames had pierced one side wall and the glare of the fire lighted the massive limbs and trunk of the vigorous old elm that had probably been planted there the year the house was built, a hundred years ago at least. No leaf touched the wall and just one thin branch scraped the roof. From below, it looked like even a squirrel would have had trouble jumping from the tree onto the house for the breadth of that small branch was no bigger than my mother's wrist. Standing there, beside father, who was preparing to rush back around to the front of the house, my mother asked him to unzip her dress. 
When he wouldn't be bothered, she made him understand. He couldn't make his hands work, so finally she tore it off and stood there in her pearls and stockings. She then directed one of the men to lean the broken half of the extension ladder up against the trunk of the tree. In surprise, he complied. She ascended, she vanished. Then she could be seen among the leafless branches of late November as she made her way up and along her stomach, inched the length of the bough that curved above the branch that brushed the roof. Once there, swaying, she stood and balanced. There were plenty of people in the crowd and many who still remember or think they do. My mother's leap through the ice dark air toward that thinnest extension, how she broke the branch falling so that it cracked in her hands, cracked louder than the flames as she vaulted with it towards the edge of the roof, how it hurtled down end over end without her. How their eyes went up again to see where she had flown. Well, I didn't see her leap through the air. I only heard the sudden thump and looked out my window. She was hanging by the backs of her heels from the new gutter we had put in that year. She was smiling. I was not surprised to see her. She was so matter of fact. She tapped on the window. I remember just how she did it too. It was tap tap, just the friendliest tap. Like she was afraid she had arrived too early at a friend's house. Then she gestured at the latch. And when I opened the window, she told me to raise it wider, prop it up with a stick so I wouldn't crush her fingers. She swung down, caught the ledge and crawled through the opening. Once she was in my room, I realized she only had on underclothing. A bra, the heavy stitch cotton women used to wear, and step in lace trimmed drawers. I remember feeling lightheaded, of course, and terribly relieved, and then embarrassed for her to be seen by the crowd undressed. I, I was still embarrassed as we flew out the window toward the earth. Me in her lap, her toes pointed as we skimmed toward the painted target of the firefighter's net. I know that she's right. I knew it even then. As you fall, there is time to think. Curled as I was against her stomach, I was not startled by the cries of the crowd or the looming faces. The wind roared and heat its hot breath at our back. The flames whistled. I slowly wondered what would happen if we missed the circle or bounced out of it. And then I wrapped my hands around my mother's hands I felt the brush of her lips and heard the beat of her heart in my ears, loud as thunder, long as the roll of drums.
Thank you, Io. When we come back from the break, uh, we're going to have a special guest as well. So uh, see you then. Enjoy intermission. Hello, folks. Welcome, welcome. I want to invite a special guest up to the stage. This is Grace Helmke from uh, Mary's Place. Hello, y'all. I'm Grace, as Gavin said. I'm here from Mary's Place. I'm the volunteer and events coordinator for our Bellevue and North Shore locations on the east side. Um, Mary's Place, for those of you that don't know, I'm sure most of you do, is a nonprofit serving um, unhoused families in King County. So we provide shelter and services. Um, we have five shelter locations across King County. One of those is specifically for domestic violence survivors, so women and children exclusively. Um, and the rest of them are for all kinds of family structures. So you see all sorts. You see um, expecting mothers coming in. We've had, at our Bellevue site specifically, we've had, I think, five or six Bellevue babies in the eight months that we've been open. Um, we have large families, you know, nine people, two-parent households. We have single-parent households, um, grandparents raising grandkids. Um, we allow pets, which I think is a really unique, um, yeah, thank you. <laughs> Uh, it removes a barrier for a lot of families. A lot of families are not going to uh, take up shelter if they, if they can't bring their pet because they're not going to leave their animal behind. And so that's something really unique that we're able to offer. Um, we serve, I believe, over 700 people um, each night. So we provide beds for over 700 people across all of our sites every single night. <laughs> and I believe about 390 of those are children. Um, and so we are, we are really, really fortunate to have as many shelter spaces as we do. Um, right now, we are in the throes of getting ready for back to school. As I'm sure many of you know uh, very intimately, uh, back to school involves a lot of costs. Um, and so we are really fortunate in our partnerships. Um, part of which you guys are participating in tonight, um, in providing our families with lots of school supplies. So we were able to actually, in this past week, provide each child, each school-aged child, with a backpack and a fresh set of school supplies and a gift card to get a couple brand new pairs of shoes, which is absolutely incredible. Um, but I think the, the caveat to that is that we are completely at capacity right now. Um, so we operate the family homelessness uh, phone line in King County, um, and we are right now having to turn away up to 13 families every night because we are just completely full. Um, and so we are turning to, and this is something that Mary's Place is looking to do going forward, flipping our model of funding. So right now it looks like a triangle. The bottom of it is uh, shelter, and then in the middle is our um, outreach and diversion, which would be moving families directly from leaving their homes into a new home. And then the very tip top of it that's our smallest part of our budget is prevention. Um, and eventually, without you know taking anything away from our current shelter services, we would really like to bolster that prevention work. So that is something that we are really, really focusing on right now and and trying to divert more of our budget to so that the bulk of our budget, the triangle can flip on top and the bulk of our budget can be in prevention work which involves 
in this city with very, very high uh, rental prices, a lot of rental assistance. Um, and so thank you all so much for being here tonight um, and for sharing in these stories and, and for supporting Mary's Place. Um, if you want to chat more about it, I will be here after the show. I have some cards. Um, I, uh, I'll do a little plug for my specific program. I'm a volunteer coordinator, so if you are at all interested in bringing volunteers on site, come talk to me. Um, and enjoy the rest of the show. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Grace. Thank you, Mary's Place. Uh, just one of the myriad of incredible nonprofits we have in town, one that's really doing the work. I love the way you're talking about that model and how you're working to fix it with the preventative aspect. I think that's so important. Up next, we have a story, a story by Cheryl Strayed. Uh, Cheryl Strade is, uh, lives in Portland, Oregon, uh, yes indeed, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. She very famously wrote the book Wild, which uh, is about her journey on the Pacific Coast Trail. Uh, she's very much so a kind of deep, deeply thoughtful, autobiographical type of writer. Uh, Wild was turned into a, what? The song is wrong. Oh, we can stop the song, Derek. <laughs> Julie, Julie says we're, we're, we're moving on. Uh, <laughs> and what Julie says goes. So, uh, <laughs> uh, Wild was turned into a movie, of course, with Reese Witherspoon as well. Uh, she also uh, wrote the books Torch, Brave Enough, and Tiny Beautiful Things. Uh, Tiny Beautiful Things was, at this, uh, was turned into a play, was at the Seattle Repertory Theater oh, four years ago now? Yeah. Yeah. Or, Pre-COVID, yeah. Uh, Tiny Beautiful Things is, uh, is, a, is a collection of a, of a, a column that Cheryl Strayed uh, managed called Dear Sugar. And when it was at the Seattle Repertory Theater, our very own Julie Briskman played Cheryl Strayed, uh, AKA Sugar. And here reading uh, a section uh, from that book is our very own Julie Briskman. everybody oh my gosh you're all here and you're in person and I'm not talking to you through through a recording in my office you know Gavin is right we did start this series 11 years ago to um, the, the purpose was to introduce people to Anton Chekhov so that they would come see the seagull and know that Anton Chekhov was brilliant and funny and a mensch and accessible and now here we are 11 years later partnering with various uh, organizations in the community and doing various sorts of outreach. I just, um, from the bottom of my heart, I thank you. Thank you all for all you have done to keep us grow going through COVID. You, you are beyond the beyond the beyond. All right. And now for a little beautiful, a tiny beautiful thing. Is Amy back? I am, thank you. All right. I was just vamping till my girl got back. Uh, this is from Tiny Beautiful Things by Cheryl Strayed. This piece is called The Ordinary Miraculous. Dear Sugar, one of the general mysteries of life is that I don't know what something will turn out to be until I've lived through it. Will you give us an example of something you thought was one thing and then became another. Signed, Curious. Dear Curious, 
The summer I was 18, I was driving down a country road with my mother when we stopped at a yard sale. There was nothing much of interest at the sale, but a moment before I was about to suggest that we leave, something caught my eye. A red velvet dress trimmed with lace fit for a toddler. I was pretty certain at that moment that I would never be a mother myself. Well, children were fine, but ultimately annoying, and I wanted more out of life. And yet, ridiculously, inexplicably, I wanted that red dress. Something about it called powerfully to me. My mother held it up. You want this dress for someday? <laughs> I'm not even going to have kids. What? You can put it in a box. Then you'll have it no matter what. I don't have a dollar. Yeah. I do. Three years later, I'd be standing in a field not far from that yard sale, holding the ashes of my mother's dead body in my palms. My mother was gone. The red dress was still with me, packed into a cedar box that had belonged to her. I dragged that with me all the way along the scorching trail of my 20s and into my 30s when I had two children, a son and then a daughter. The red dress was a secret known only to me, buried for years amongst my mother's best things. When I unearthed it and held it again, it was like being slapped and kissed at the same time, like uh, the volume was being turned way up, but also way down. The two things that were true about its existence had an opposite effect and yet were the same single fact. My mother bought a dress for the granddaughter she'll never know. My mother bought a dress for the granddaughter she'll never know. How beautiful, how ugly, how little, how big, how painful, how sweet. It is seldom that we can draw a direct line between this and that. My desire to buy the dress was made meaningful only by my mother's death and my daughter's birth. The dress was the material evidence of my loss, but also of the way my mother's love had carried me forth beyond her. Her life extending years into my own in ways that I never could have imagined in the moment that red dress caught my eye. And seeing my daughter on the second Christmas of her life, wearing the red dress that the grandmother she'd never meet bought for her, returned something to me that I thought had been lost forever. 
We cannot possibly know what will manifest in our lives. We live and have experiences and leave people we love and get left by them. People we thought would be with us forever aren't and people we didn't know would come into our lives do. Our work here is to keep the faith with that, to put it in a box and wait, mm -hmm. to trust that someday we will know what it means so that when the ordinary miraculous is revealed to us, we will be there. Standing before the baby girl in the pretty red dress, grateful for the smallest things. <laughs>